Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to prequel production designer Gavin Bouquet, all about the incredible work he did with his team to bring the worlds like Naboo, Coruscant, and Geonosis to life. This is a really rare interview with someone who made an indelible mark on the saga. I don't think he's really talked in depth about Star Wars in nearly a decade. So without further ado, this is Talking Bay 94, episode 81, Gavin Bouquet. But I don't, I don't want to talk about Star Wars only either because you've done so much and so many incredible things, especially recently. I'd love to start at the beginning with your training, with your inspirations, and what made you want to get into film and especially the, the art side and the production design side of that. I mean, I was at design school doing um, industrial design, three-dimensional design, and I did a postgraduate course at the Royal College of Art. And as I was coming to the end of that course... Uh, Stuart Craig, who's obviously a very successful production designer, he'd been at the Royal College about 10 years before me. And he was just starting his first feature film as a production designer, uh, Saturn III, an infamous uh, science fiction film with um, Farrah Fawcett Majors and Kirk Douglas. And he just put a little handwritten note on our notice board saying anybody wanting to make props for a science fiction film, please call this number. And at that time, you're talking about the late late 70s, early 80s. There wasn't really that many film courses. It wasn't an easy thing to get into in design. There were theatre courses and there were product design and furniture and industrial and architecture and interior. But there wasn't really any avenue education-wise to get into the film business. It was all very much who you knew and where you lived, basically. So I just took that opportunity to go with Stuart and I was uh, officially called a space equipment divisor. <laughs> that was my title. Uh-huh. And um, that was because of the unions and it was a situation where you couldn't get into the film business unless you were in a union and you couldn't get into the union unless you had a job. The same things that I, you know, it doesn't happen here so much, but I think on your side, it's still very much like that. Mm-hmm. So they gave me a title that wasn't a union grade, Mm -hmm. so I could take that job. And it was uh, quite amusing at the end of that job, I went to to sign on uh, as you did then in the unemployment benefit office. And they asked me what what I do. And I said, I'm a space equipment divisor. (laughs) And they said, we don't really have much call for that. (laughs) So So I then went into, I carried on with Stuart onto Elephant Man and move sort of sideways away from the sort of sci-fi world. He was very good advice. He said, look, you can go along that channel. There might not be any science fiction films. <laughs> or, or you can come across into the art department proper on a Victorian film. Right. Uh, so I did that with Stuart. And then he went off to do Gandhi. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't do, uh, I, I was too junior to be taken to India. So he put me in touch with Norman Reynolds, who was just starting up Jedi. Right. So I moved across there. So that's that was my sort of brief introduction into that world. I mean, to have two mentors like Stuart Craig, who of course did all the Harry Potter films after, yes, and then yes. Norman Reynolds is an incredible <laughs> way to, to learn the, the craft and everything. I'd love to touch a little bit on, on your work on Jedi, because I think that's such a funny way to get introduced to the saga uh, as a draftsman. And what were you doing yes. for Jedi? And what was kind of that process for you? In a sense, on Saturn 3, I was designing props and control panels. It was Concept art as such didn't really exist so much then. Well, hardly at all. There were there were illustrators, film illustrators, who came in and did production visuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the way that sort of Ralph McQuarrie came in from that sort of product design background, that was sort of at the late, you know, at the late 70s, that was starting to be something. So I was in that sort of mode on Jedi, but called an assistant art director, mm-hmm. um, I think, or was it Ross? I can't remember. And it was basically looking at conceptualizing a lot of the hand props, the weapons, mm-hmm. control panels. Thing. I think my first job was to dress the first speeder. Fred Hole was the art director. Mm-hmm. So I'd drawn up the first speeder. And it, my responsibility was to dress it, basically. Uh-huh. And I, if, you, if you know, Elstree Studios, as it is now, is where all those early films were made mm-hmm. um, in Boreham Wood. And there's a high street, a fairly nondescript suburban high street. And I used to go down to the hardware shop at the end of the high street 
to get things, greeblies as we called them, right. to put on the speeder. And the nose cone from the speeder, if you look at it, is a curtain finial, <laughs> like a Victorian curtain finial. Right. So I know when, when I've seen that hanging up in exhibitions sometimes. <laughs> but I think, as you know, that history of Roger Christian and John sure. Barry from the early films, they, they created that world because, in theory, they didn't really have any money. Right in the first one so they were trying to scrounge you know they were getting everything from scrapyards and you know often in the film business and many many other businesses things happen by a bit of synchronicity not by any great planning mm -hmm. it was just by circumstances that that things moved in that way but Stuart and Norman they I mean I worked with them on and I think I worked with Stuart four times and Norman five mm -hmm. and although there were other designers in the way as you said they were my two sort of mentors really right you're like anybody you're trying to suck up as as much but in a sense you know that every step I took forward Stuart was taking another two so I felt it was sort of unattainable but it was but it was quite good to have that sort of aim I mean the sad thing is when you become a designer yourself mm -hmm. you don't work with those people again right you know you you started off on your own channel because as you could imagine you were all in very separate little groups on films and you're completely focused even in a studio with other films going, you're generally very focused on the one that you're doing and the people that you're working with. Right. Yeah. I'd love to chart your your journey before you get connected again with Lucasfilm, but from art director to production designer, right? Of course, Return to Oz and Young Sherlock Holmes, but then working with Soderbergh on Kafka. Yes. Uh, what was that like? I mean, that was his second movie, I think. And what was kind of your process of becoming a production designer in your own right? Yeah, there was. I mean, there was no great not ambition there was no great plan mm -hmm. you know it was one job after the other um and i always say to people who are coming up as long as you let people know that you do have that desire at some mm -hmm. point because it's all about word of mouth and suggestions mm -hmm. and i think what happened was um on kafka i had designed um one small tv series which uh, peter young who's a very successful set decorator in the uk he's retired now knew the producers and they were going to Hong Kong and it was like a Miami Vice in Hong Kong. Uh -huh. It was quite a good, you know, right. <laughs> the principle was actually quite interesting. Yeah. Um, and they did one series um, and it didn't really do that well, but they were planning to go, but they went back for a second series. So I went back out to Hong Kong, you know, as the production designer again, and I was out there for about six weeks mm -hmm. and the, it collapsed because of a lot of infighting back in the UK television companies. So I came home and I then got the opportunity to meet Soderbergh wow. for Kafka. Mm -hmm. So I sometimes have this sort of slightly cold sweat that if, if the TV series hadn't finished, I wouldn't have come back and right. been available. You know, that's that bit of synchronicity. Right. So how that came about was that Norman was doing, Norman Reynolds was doing Avalon mm -hmm. with Barry Levinson and Mark Johnson. Mm -hmm. And Kafka was their first production under um, Baltimore Pictures. So I think Norman, I think they just asked for some reason, who knows, that, that, that Stephen wanted somebody who was very new. Uh -huh in the business. I right. don't know, you know, you can argue why that is, but we all need to get a first chance somewhere. So I'm grateful to him for that. <laughs> and I think he just, I think um, uh, Norman just, just suggested me to Barry and to um, uh, to Mark. Uh -huh. And I remember having a, you know, there was no Skype in those days. So I think Stephen was in, in London. I went to meet him and, and sort of got the job and then you're sort of off and running really. Right. Yeah. It, it, it was a and it was a great introduction for me. Um, I mean, it wasn't the most successful film commercially, but it, it became quite a sort of a liked oddity. Right. And uh, other jobs subsequent to that, like even um, the first Triple X with Rob Cohen, mm -hmm. because they were going to Prague. Um, I know they had, I, the advantage for me with Kafka that was that everybody in the industry professionally saw it because it was Soderbergh's second feature. Right. So even though the public didn't necessarily go, um, it meant people like producers and directors because you know, it looked good. I mean, I don't mean just from my point of view. It was a very interesting sort of looking movie. And I read last year that he's actually re-releasing it. Oh, wow. He's working on it again huh. still, 25, 30 years <laughs> later. 
So he obviously felt very close to it. And it's a, it's a bit of a flawed movie, but then we all know flawed movies can actually be quite interesting movies in, in retrospect. Right. I'm actually on a Soderbergh kick right now. I've been rewatching. I watched High Flying Bird like yesterday, and I'm just kind of going back through everything. And Kafka, to me, always stands out because it is his second feature, and he has to kind of define who he is. And it's just that process and so interesting because I think... And it was so different. He purposely wanted to travel somewhere away from any any spying eyes in the sense, mm-hmm. you know, psychologically away from sex lies and videotape into a period setting. And Prague at that time, had, you know, had just come out, just the Velvet Revolution had happened. So it was just opening up. And we had some very Kafkaesque experiences in Prague. <laughs> which were very funny, almost um, almost funnier than that, because the film is quite funny. It's mm-hmm. quite a sort of humor, humorous drama. Right. Um, so that's how I ended up as my first sort of feature, really, right. um, as a production designer. But, you know, again, as if people are listening, it's it's a bit like a series of events that you can't necessarily control. And your life could have gone off in many other many other directions. But um, uh, it was great. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. The, the Prague connection is interesting to me because, of course, then your filmography jumps to working with Rick McCallum a lot and George Lucas, especially on Young Indy. And now McCallum is working very heavily in Prague and that's kind of where he yeah. is. Did that influence at all how y'all met or what was that? No, I think when I heard, I, when I came back from, um, I don't know what the gap was after doing Kafka, it had come out. So I had a, um, not a name, I mean, people are aware that I've done something. And I'd mm-hmm. heard that Young Indiana Jones was happening. Mm-hmm. And I knew with, you know, they wanted somebody with a, a sort of TV and film background. And I'd done a TV series and I'd done um, a film and I'd worked with George on uh, a couple of things he was related to, whether it was Return right. to Oz or whatever and Star Wars. And I've, initially I wrote to Robert Watts. I emailed, you know, not email, I don't think we could email. <laughs> but it, I wrote to Robert Watts to see if he was involved in it. Um, and he mm-hmm. said, no, it was uh, Rick McCallum. And mm-hmm. we, I found out that Rick McCallum lived in the road next to me in London. Wow. So I just went round on, a, I think, <laughs> 20, I think it was like Christmas Eve or something, uh-huh. and put a letter through his um, uh, letterbox. And I didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks, so you presume that's okay. But then, it, yeah, he got in touch, and it sort of went from there. And I think that sort of, I think on the on the, one reason that, one practical reason was that on the TV series in Hong Kong, Yellow Thread Street, it was called, um, we had two units shooting together and uh-huh. with one art department working through. And I think Rick was, you know, looking at Young Indy, he was looking at that as an interesting exercise. It didn't actually happen, but I think when, in terms of the Prague connection, it was simply looking at all the scripts. The one great thing, they had great writers, Frank Darabon, whatever, writing those. And I remember when I started, we virtually had the first series of scripts finished. And that is a huge advantage to any designer to to have something you can look at. So you're then scouring the world of where can you shoot these settings, whether it's London, Spain, Prague. And of course, you can see from many films, Prague can sort of stand in a bit like um, Budapest can stand in for, you know, Northern Europe, Eastern Europe, not so much Southern, but Western Europe. Uh, so I, we did sort of France and, and Moscow and Prague itself and Vienna. So it was just a very good, good spot. And it was it had come alive because of the the opening up, you know, at Barandov Studios. But it was no desire to go back to Prague for any other reason that it seemed a practical place to do these locations one way or another. We used to do I think we did about we used to do three episodes in one country, which was two uh-huh. weeks shooting each. So six weeks. And then I would have flown off earlier to where whether we were in Africa or whether we we're in Spain. So. The great thing for me was that it was, um, we had all sorts of different directors from, just see, Billy August was there, Nick Rogue was there, and Nick Rogue was a very, somebody really worked off the cuff. He didn't want to plan anything, he would just come in and work, whereas Billy August, coming from that sort of Nordic background, was incredibly organised, everything planned out, written. So you can imagine going through these different directors. It was a great education for me just to see how different directors would work because you're gathering something from everybody really i mean nick rogue i mean nick rogue would we would drive past a location like a chateau for an interior location and nick would say that'll do (laughs) but without going in and then we would go there on the shoot day 
and he'd say, who chose this? (laughs) (laughs) And it's a lot of it is a game that directors can play, you know, in that sort of way. But it was that was over two seasons. That was um, a great education. And I think one day we were driving on a scout. I remember it with David Tattersall, the DP. um, uh, And I think Martin Smith, the editor who did Phantom Menace. um, We were going to a, a location in Prague or outside of Prague. And Rick just said, out came out, Rick McCallum came out and said, well, when we do Star Wars, what? <laughs> so there was just this sort of, oh, okay, right. So George was sort of building up really to that. He knew that was coming. That was in the plans. Right. And he was experimenting on Young indie. It's a little bit ahead of its time in a way because of the popularity of TV drama now whether it's Netflix, whether it's, you know, whatever station is huge, but it was one of the first and he, the budget was worked out on an episode of MacGyver. It was the, that, that was the intent that they wanted to make a really heavy period drama looking piece with action um, based on that costing. And in terms of visual effects, George felt it was just getting out of the commercial TV commercials. We're using a lot of replication digital art, you know, with the Harry machines and things, but it hadn't really transferred to film or TV. So he used um, uh, Young Indie. The idea was to get five or six digitally enhanced shots into each episode, just to give it the scale of a feature. And in fact, Rick and George, they didn't use ILM. They used a, a commercials company in San Francisco because they felt they were more knowledgeable on that side at that point, but were also obviously were cheaper to get that out. And I think we were averaging about $25,000 a shot. Um, And I think, I think, I think when I was up at uh, San Rafael before they moved, there was one sort of glass painting, which was of a, um, a riding school we did in Vienna, which needed the top half of the painting. And I think I may be wrong, but I think that was the last, physical glass painting that ILM did. Oh, wow. It then became digital. So they had this sure. one on the wall. I, I think it might be the second or the first, but that just shows you at that time in what what was it, 92, 93, things were really sort yeah. of moving. Um, uh, so that's when we first knew that, oh, maybe Star Wars is an opportunity. Right. <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, you're you're touching on it, and the, the legacy of Young Indy or the legacy of Radio Land Murders and all of this is is McCallum and Lucas finding their crew and finding their shots and finding whatever it is, and whether it's you or Tattersall or Trisha Bigger, for instance, yeah, working yeah. on Young Indy, all then moving to the prequels. I'd be curious about what you were learning. These were intense shoots, and you were just jumping country to country to country over and over again. I'd be curious to what you learned, whether it was working with Lucas and McCallum or what you brought to the prequels from Young Indy and Radioland, especially. Well, I think I think the the what we brought to Young Indy, apart from the official creative side that we hopefully bring, was the organization, just mm-hmm. the planning and doing things as efficiently as possible. And like all successful businessmen, they don't want to overspend money. Mm-hmm. You know the reason George. Is doing very well is because you know he doesn't just spend more than he needs to spend and i think with right. rick controlling all of that i think that was a, a big learning curve and then of course we did radio land murders where it it sort of took a step up applying that that visual effects side in simple form again to a sort of pretty right. low budget comedy on a, a, as a film i mean if you asked all of us who went on to to star wars peter russell was my supervising art director he didn't do young indie but i came, i came into the business with him really in the mm-hmm. early days um we we didn't think we were ready probably mm-hmm. if you asked us but of course if you put if something's put in front of you you it's a day to day thing it's not we always got slightly more concerned when you went home and somebody said to you away from the film, which is, oh, wow, you're doing Star Wars. The concern, the worry would be then not going into the office each day where you've got a lot of good people around you and you're, you're just solving problems on a day by day basis. That all seemed very natural. It was only when you took a step back away and people said, well, that's quite a big thing to be involved with. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but I think you know Rick. Rick was a real, real driving force with George on that, mm-hmm. um, really pushing things along in a, in a, in a very creative but very financially fiscal way. Uh-huh. 
you know, on that. And, and why not? You know, that's a, you can imagine those films financially, as they often do these days, they can run away. Uh, and maybe, you know, maybe the present situation with, you know, the difficulties of COVID and that, that'll make everybody think a little bit more that, you know, you can't just do that. You know, things have right. got, you know, sometimes it's, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I think in this little interesting time, people are taking a look at a lot of things. They're right. taking a look at their life. They're taking a look, look at the, how they make films, you know, right. going to change it. And maybe sometimes to reboot it, you know, not that you'd wish it was because of that, but sometimes right. something that makes you reboot your life a little bit and how things are done is maybe not a bad, bad thing. Yeah, that's very interesting. And even more interesting, just because we're talking about Soderbergh and High Flying Bird was shot on an iPhone. You know what I mean? Like just yes, kind yes. of yes. figuring out what the next steps are is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Phantom Menace, <laughs> incredible. I mean, just like the, the amount of work that went into it to make it feel Star Wars and make it feel like it was part of this universe, I'm sure it took a lot of work with you and Doug Chang and Lucas all working together to make this feel holistic and, and real. What was that early process for you and, and kind of jumping into that? Well, I think the, diff- the difficulty we had as opposed to the sequels was that we didn't really have a lot of connection hardware-wise to those the films that had been out because you know, it was a prequel. So apart from R2-D2 and C-3PO, there was nothing sort of shipwise, say, <laughs> that was there. So we, so between Doug and myself and the concept guys, we had to come up with a world that was still believable within that genre, within that world, right. but didn't include a lot of the artifacts. Obviously, we went back to sort of Mos Eisley, Mos Espa, and we, we could create the similar sort of feel of Tatooine and going back to the sort of sunken um, homesteads. But generally, if you look at all the three films, they didn't really have much design-wise in terms of hardware and technology that you saw in the first three films. And obviously the the sequels could take advantage of that because they could connect all those things. You still see the same cat. We didn't have any of the same characters as actors at all. I mean, you couldn't have them younger. I mean, the same ones. Um, So I think when we finished, Peter, Peter Russell and myself and Peter Walpole, the set decorator, mm-hmm. all we wanted was that the audience believed it was a Star Wars world. That's I know it sounds a bit selfish, but that's what we wanted to, if we felt, you know, because the film got criticised in various ways, it, it was never going to live up to what it was before. We all understood that. But I don't think it ever um, got criticised for not looking like it should look, mm-hmm. you know, in that way. And that's from Doug, his guys, from us. Um, the set dressing from Trisha, it all seemed to fit in. But but sometimes you can't theorize how you got to those points. It is sometimes just going into the office each day and on instinct doing what you think is best. But George, you know, George was very easy to work with. I mean, I mean, you've probably heard the stories about the um, the stamps he has when we did displays. So he never wanted things to be explained. If he couldn't understand what a design was visually because that's how the audience was going to see it that's how it had to be and as you know it's not it's not he wasn't trying to like 2001 he wasn't trying to foretell the future or past as it were if something had to happen that seemed science fiction it was really a story point for george Mm -hmm. it would really just help him get to the next stage of the story he wasn't an arthur c Clarke figure trying to sort of foretell what science or or technology would exist in that point, I think. So, um, no, I hate to say it to your people who may see this, but there was no great master plan. You <laughs> just try, you just tried to cover your bases, understand what George wanted, see the things he liked, as you do now. You show a lot of five or six different ideas of an idea, then you narrow it down to three, then you narrow it down to one, and then you detail that up. And that was the same with the locations. I think the location side was really interesting because as we know, George, wherever possible, he always wanted to use a real location. Right. Whether it was the snowfields of Norway or, or the forest in Jedi or in Tunisia. So when we were looking for Naboo and the palace, I mean, I suppose that was my job that I had a wonderful six week journey traveling through Portugal, Spain, Southern France and Italy. Right. Just me and a, a location manager from each country looking at all the grand palaces that might stand in for that. Because I, I think George felt that you could then change them a little bit, put a little bit of technology in that if the audience can um, uh, 
see something that's tangible to them that they could connect with, they can believe it. It's very difficult to invent from nothing sometimes. So George always felt if he could use architecture and biology and geography that already existed in our world, which is immense anyway, uh -huh. then the story would work even better. He can't do that with every environment that he did, basically, like um, uh, Mustafa. You, you're not going to go to sure. a, you know, a volcano planet to do that. Right. Uh, and I think initially Rick, <laughs> Rick's ambition, he wanted to shoot in the Vatican. <laughs> for the Naboo palace. Right. He thought, he thought that could, that even he and George couldn't get that one right. over the line. So the so Caserta, the palace in Naples, was a great sort of right. standard for that. And bouncing off of Doug's concept art of how Naboo was in that classical feel, mm -hmm. that I think, you know, the audience will go with it. And there's so yeah. much detail you can see in those um, those worlds that just gives the audience a, a better understanding and belief in what they're looking at. Yeah, no, 100%. And I think one of the strengths of the prequels that gets overlooked so often are the the strength of the sets that are built. And I think yes. people are like, oh, it's all the computer, whatever. But really, it's it's grounding it in what you, you and your team built and then expanding it with a blue screen somewhere or whatever it was. I'd be curious about the challenges that you had building those sets as opposed to building a set for a period piece or for Young Eddie or something like that. Well, I, I always say that sort of idea of how you expand, whether it's sort of going back to Gone with the Wind, where it was all painted foreground pieces or mm -hmm. foreground miniatures, that you're still concepting the whole environment. And then there's a decision about where you stop, basically. Right. Where is that line? Um, I mean, the perception that you talked about that wasn't helped by the fact that George, that Rick used to go around after as episode one was coming out saying, we only built the sets to six feet high. Then Liam Neeson joined and we had to build them to 10 feet high. <laughs> well, that reality, that's not true. I mean, the hangar right. was, was 30 feet. And right. you know, in all of the, you know, if you've got a very short scene in a big environment, well, the chances are you're going to digitally produce most of that, even today. If you've got a lot of film, filming or lots of scenes in one place, George and Rick want you to build as much as you can because, you know, however good digital work is, it's not cheap. You know, so every, all that composite, you know, compositing in. So I don't think it's changed too much today. We still look exactly the same things. What's sensible for us to build and what's sensible for visual effects to build. And the great thing about that Star Wars world, which is happening much more these days, was that visual effects, obviously, like with um, John Knoll, uh, certainly on Phantom, they were involved right from the beginning. Whereas on other films at that time, the visual effects people came in maybe halfway through the prayer. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, myself, and you want to talk to DPs and, um, and visual effects people as early as you can. So they understood. I mean, although I remember John, very, very sweet John, used to get very frustrated because he, he was actually working on other films. Uh -huh. And of course, we would be going over to him saying, well, how are we going to do this? Right. I'm, sure you've seen, I, I'm sure you've seen some interviews with um, with John. I, I saw one on the, the Phantom Menace disc where they're all of us at the, at the big house at the ranch and we're putting up storyboards and George is marking up the colours. We decided like blue, pink, yellow, what was real, what wasn't real. Right. And I remember there's one line, I think John, John Noel is saying, well, we don't know how we're going to do that, George. <laughs> right. you know, I mean, I think that was the ambition. That was that we don't know how we're going to do right. it now, but if you set us the task, then we will do that. And I think that's how we all sort of looked at it, at it a bit. But, but the, you know, the idea of that sort of pink and yellow and blue, what was a digital creature, what was a real set, what was an, an extension, what was a vehicle, I could apply that to the same things that right. I'm doing now, to be honest. You know, you look at a visual and you go, well, how, you know, we want to cover as much as that as we can in camera, but then occasionally go up, go to there or down or wherever it was. It would be very hard for somebody to, to, to theorize about that because every script and every scene and every action sort of demands something different. You know, I'm sure you could have a, somebody could write a book about where do you draw that line? That's the question I always, where do you do it? Where is it? Um, and it's interesting because when you know about something and you understand it from your years experience, it's quite obvious to, to oneself. It doesn't mean you're clever or anything. It just means you understand those things. And a, a lot of it isn't necessarily rocket science. You know, how the technology works is 
rocket science, how the digital side of it works. But as long as we know what the digital world can provide with the visual effects supervisor there and, and what the director wants to shoot, that's where that comes from. And I think it's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. The fact that John Knoll and his group were around for us right at the beginning of each of those episodes yeah. really helped. Much more common now. You know, that's, you know, they visual effects supervisor will start probably when I start. I mean, what you're describing is the legacy of these prequel movies. I love them, but the people that might not don't understand the gravity and the legacy that they've had with how movies are made now, right? The way that George kind of set all this up and and even I would love to talk about the digital filming of especially Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the yes. Sith. How did that impact your work and how did that change any of the physical things you were building or any of the things that your team was having to do? I mean, it was still the same process in terms of you had the concept, whether it had come from Doug, whether it had come from us, whether it had come from location pictures, and you are ritually drawing the line somewhere as to say, well, this is what we should do. Mm -hmm. Obviously, when you've got the, the battle um, with the droids, as you can see, that's a pretty continuous digital right. escapade, really. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think if you go back to what I was saying on Young Indy, even at that time, George was trying to think of what TV drama could be. He wasn't sure the technology would financially allow it to happen. But by maneuvering to a different company, et cetera, he did. So right. even then, as I said, he was way ahead of, you know, 15 years later when TV dramas had suddenly become as filmic. Right. As, I mean, I think Young Indie suffered a little bit because everybody expected a Young Indie film every mm -hmm. episode. And you couldn't have that much action. It just wasn't financially viable. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, so a lot of them are quite sort of story orientated and people weren't in, weren't really. I've had heard George say when we've been talking that that's almost that's young indie series is what he's most proud mm -hmm. of. It's quite interesting to hear that. And, and when we were down in Australia doing the uh, second series, um, the paparazzi were trying to find George, uh -huh. you know, but he's quite quiet and right. separate. You don't see him. And the only um, the only place they got him was in the equivalent of a probably a, um, a dollar shop, buying buying from the bargain bin the, the VHSs of Young Indy because uh -huh. he wanted to show them to his children right. who were about the right age, but he didn't have the right format. Uh -huh. players. <laughs> so the only paparazzi shop was him buying That's his great. own films. That's so great. <laughs> I really do think, I think the legacy of Young Indie is understood, but I think the way it's not accessible right now, really, there's the DVDs, and I think they showed up on Amazon at one point. As soon as they're put onto Disney+, Plus, I think a whole new audience is going to discover how rich they are and how... I was going to say, no, I, know I was thinking, but yes, of course, it would be Disney+, Plus, wouldn't it, that they would go on to? They would have to. Right? Yeah, no, you're surprising with Netflix and all of right. those, and they're re-showing a lot of historic things. Well, that's the perfect one to put on. I mean, it's a lot of competition for them up, you know, that they would be up right. against now. People would have to, in a sense, take them wow that was pretty good right. for them you know i'm not trying to say it's not right. good now but that as you say i don't think people um will look at them in the same way as them um, they don't appreciate what was being done but that's you know it, we want the audience to see things just as they are the fact that you know we, it's a very thank thankless business in some ways because if we do our job properly and create worlds whether it's period or or whatever, however we do it people only notice it if it doesn't uh -huh. work if it's wrong, you know, if it looks perfectly, they probably think we've just, like on the Miss Peregrine, the Tim Burton film, the house, they probably think we just found a house and we shot everything in the house. Well, I've done, you know, I've done a couple of lectures at, at the film schools specifically on uh -huh. that, which just shows people it's never that simple. Mm -hmm. The trick is to make it look like one house. And of course, the audience just thinks, well, that's one house. So that's fine. You know, we're not going to go away you know, with little subtitles and we, <laughs> and we did that, you know, mm -hmm. hopefully your the satisfaction is, you know, what you did. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think one of the things that would warrant that from an audience, if it was wrong, which in the prequels, it was done perfectly, were the recreations of the John Barry, Roger Christian sets from the originals. I, I mean, specifically in my mind, you have the Lars Homestead, you have the blockade runner walls, yes, yes. you have all that. What was that process for you? And I love, I mean, you were talking about it, period pieces and working on those. I almost view this as like kind of a period piece in itself, right? And having to... No, I mean, it is a long time ago right. in the galaxy, isn't yeah. it? It is a period piece to that extent. And of course, we, of course, on the first one we had roger roger christian was a second unit director right so myself and peter walpole the decorator were very much 
<laughs> looking over our right. shoulders. And we asked, you know, Roger, you know, does this work? You know, there was somebody who was right. actually from that period. You know, and interestingly, John Barry was the original director of Saturn Three, that first Stuart Craig movie I worked on. And, you know, he got fired, interestingly, after six weeks. It wasn't really working. So he went off. He was going to direct the second unit of Empire Strikes Back and then, right. then got meningitis and died. You know, so, right. so that that whole thing was my introduction to the film business. This whole experience on Saturn Three was, <laughs> wow, this is quite an interesting yeah. world. And Stanley Donnan took over the filming. He was one of the producers. And I remember him saying, I was, they said, well, he's, I don't like science fiction anyway. (laughs) It was always going to be a bit of a hard slog, that one. But apparently, even Saturn 3 has a bit of a cult following Mm -hmm. out there. But but it is interesting that whole idea of concept art. I remember Stuart employed a graphic designer to do the graphic works on the spacesuit. And it caused quite a lot of issues because it was the first time somebody had been brought in from the outside uh-huh. to a film art department. Everything was done sort of within, whether it was sign writing, graphics. And of course, now you know the whole world of concept world and concept design is just enormous. I mean, obviously, with the advent of games as well, I think it has to be said that's all part of right. that sort of world on that. But, you know, those sort of films were made without what you might call you know, even going back to 2001, you're pure concept artists mm-hmm. in a way. But I think there's so much demand now with the digital world that you can create these wonderful universes. Mm-hmm. But um, but it, the little thing I'm probably doing now, if COVID allows us, is a little period piece set in 1908 about Graham, Kenneth Graham, who wrote Wind in the Willows on that basis. So there's always room for both. Right. You know, on that. But we're still, even on that small little film, well, it's you know, 25, 30 million, quite big, small we're still having those same discussions about where do you draw the line? Where's this? Where's that? On a slightly sort of smaller scale. I think, I think the good thing is everything you learn on the, on the slightly bigger scale of films, you can apply to the smaller ones. It's not so easy to apply what you learn on the smaller ones to the big ones. Right. You know, you know so that's just a, a bit of fortune, whether you've worked on things or not. But as you can see from my little timeline, it was very much a, um, a synchronicity, things falling into place. Right. I mean, before leaving, talking about the prequels, I would love to touch, because you're bringing up concept artists, and of course the concept artists on the prequels are famous in their own right, whether it's Doug Chang or Ian McCagg or that whole team. Yeah, yeah. And as you moved through the movies, I remember reading, I think in Revenge of the Sith, the making of Revenge of the Sith, you and Trisha Bigger especially were just kind of there observing every so often at the very, very beginning of pre-pro, what was that yes. relationship like and, and what did that add to your process as the filming went on? Well, I th- I'll, I'll go back to a little anecdote we had with Trisha on the first day of shooting on um, Phantom Menace. And Trisha's great and we worked really well together, but we were, as I said, we, did, you know, we probably deep down didn't think we were quite prepared uh-huh. for this. But the first, the first day of shooting was in um, uh, Palpatine's room. Mm-hmm where um, the queen comes in. And the room, if you remember, was a deep crimson red. Mm-hmm. It was in Curacant. And they said, and we, and I, I'm sure I talked to Trish and we talked about it. And then the, the three handmaidens came in to the room and they were in exactly the same color. <laughs> uh-huh. So Trisha and I sort of looked at each other and go, oh. Uh, but I think George liked the idea mm-hmm. because they sort of disappeared. Right they sort of dropped back. But I think that made Trisha and I, as you should do, be very aware mm-hmm. <laughs> of some of those obvious things. Right. But when you look at some of those uh, some of those scenes and some of the costumes were so varied, even in one scene, mm-hmm. that they were a whole mi- mix of different people of different levels of the, the population right. that you can't harmonise everything with everything. I mean, mm-hmm. Moss Esper, Moss Eisley is great because it's that fairly sort of neutral light warm color and most of the costumes had a slightly darker tone to them mm-hmm. but i think once we got to sith we had a much better understanding of everything i have to say thinking back now it's quite hard to separate between sith and clones uh-huh. men- mentally because they were both done in australia uh, mostly not all right. but mostly so the experiences sort of we were sort of in a in a working mode then mm-hmm. i think the, the biggest thing if people listen to this is you must never get complacent you must never think that what you're doing is easy, mm-hmm. that you can just do certain things. We used to have um, 
you'll probably like this. We because George was back in um, at the ranch a lot of the time in prep. Mm-hmm. We used to send him videos or images of what we were designing in model form uh-huh. back to the ranch, and then he would overnight. It worked well. He by the time we got back in the morning, he would have replied. Right. But we used to do things where we'd have um, three model versions of the set of how much we would build. Uh-huh. You know, from small to medium to big. And we had a big banner over the top saying the price is right. (laughs) And we had a different price on each one. Right. So George basically just chose A, B or C. Right. And it was all based on the fact of A, how much you built and how much you didn't build. Mm -hmm. And he very rarely went for the the bigger build. Mm-hmm. It was generally the middle or the small. Obviously, that was with a lot of conversations with John Knoll. I'm sure <laughs> it, wasn't, right. it wasn't quite as abstract as that. But I think that we really had a good time. That that gives you an idea of how how much enjoyment you could get about working with George. Mm-hmm. It was very much a sort of a group. And I really admire what they're doing now with Disney and the new ones. But, you know, talking to people who work, it, it's a different beast now. Sure. It's not that, it's not George. George brought a lot of his personality to the, the, the making of those shows. Mm-hmm. And I think that probably shows in a good way and a bad way in the films. Right. Whereas now they're almost, they're almost not too professional. That's really a critical thing to say. <laughs> uh-huh. For me, there's, there was something very personal about George. It was him in those films, you know, mm-hmm. whether people like the direction or like the stories, it was what he wanted to tell. Right. It was Tim, wasn't it? And it's sort of, you can't criticize him for that. You no. know, if you want to go off and make your own movies, right? that's fine. But that's sort of George, really. Yeah. I mean, they were the biggest independent movies of all time, right? He had no... Well, and we moved into the digital filming, remember? You know, that was, I think we must have been one of the first big features to mm-hmm. sort of shoot on digital. And I remember even the way we do marbling, you know, is often dipping paper, marbling, painting, and then you would cut, you'd rip it and then stick it on. But of course, you know, when you get a digital image, the concern is you can see those joins, even more so with makeup and, you know, you right. can see every little pig, bit of pigment. But what we also realized was that because you had really good monitors on stage, which were really showing you exactly what you saw at the time, not just some black mm-hmm. and white, something, right. you could actually spot those things before they were shot. Whereas, you know, previous years you'd be going into rushes hoping that what you'd you'd provided for the camera was going to work on that. So I think, you know, we were all nervous, but in the end it proved a a positive. Again, the the legacy of the prequels extends not only to the story and to the characters, but I think to how movies are filmed, how movies are shown in theaters. Everything really comes from from George and that that style of filmmaking. I mean, it's interesting. I've got um, got, youngest children. I've got a a 16-year-old daughter and a a 12-year-old son. And they actually watched Phantom Menace for the first time about three weeks ago. Uh And my daughter said, wow, it looks as good as the the latest. I mean, from a technology point of view, I think she was worried she was going to be looking at something. (laughs) didn't really stand up. Mm-hmm. So that was a nice sort of, it might seem odd that my children haven't seen them yet, <laughs> but hey, they will one day. Yeah. They'll see the legacy. They'll see the legacy one day. Yeah. I mean, speaking of legacy and, and your work after Star Wars, of course, I thought it was interesting at the beginning of our conversation when you mentioned, you know, Stuart Craig being like, there's a direction you can go, like a science fiction direction you can go. And not all of the movies you've worked on, of course, have been science fiction, but they've all been fantastical, right? Whether it's Stardust or Warcraft or Miss Peregrine, like you mentioned, I think the one that stands out to me, especially now, is Dark Crystal and the work you did. Yes, yes. Replicating all of that, because it really is just a feat in itself. I'd love to just touch on that a little bit, because I know a lot of the listeners love, of course, the Muppets and Jim Henson and that world and, and that challenge you must have had to to recreate all yeah, of that. Yeah, I think, you know, in a, in a funny sort of way, it was a similar entity to looking at the Star Wars sequels. Right. You know, we were basing it on something that existed before, but generally... In the scripts that we had, again, you're very good to Jim Henson company. We had the majority of the scripts at the beginning and probably to our advantage, about 20% took place in the Skeksis castle, about 20%. So we sort of knew that schedule wise, we could start working on that. But there were some other rooms in there like the bathhouse and the extra corridors, but we knew we had an architectural form that, that came from the original designers and from Jim Henson. But then the other 80%, 
again, you didn't in the original film, you didn't see much more than the castle and some surrounding landscape. Right. You didn't really go to the other Gelfling towns and villages. So with you do the same. I remember that first start, we had about six week concept prep with three or four of the concept guys that I work here. We picked two or three of those other Gelfling environments. And we just got as much reference and some early concept work of how those could be interpreted, whether it was hurrah or whether it was stone in the wood. And we had some history of the Gelflings and where they came from. And you're just trying to put a lot of ideas in front of, well, all of them, really. There was all, for, whether it's director, producer. I wasn't sure at one point who you, whether it's Louis Leterrier you're working with. But you knew, I think the hardest thing was that it was a bit like George. It was Jim's legacy. You know, to his to his family, this right. was like re a rebirth of something he'd done before, and a bit like I told you at the you know all we wanted to do with Phantom Menace was make sure that the audience believed you were in that world, right. and you didn't have any master plan whether you knew what you were doing was right or wrong, but you sort of took that spirit of watching the original film, and we had some some of the staff, you know, we had plasters and and carpenters who had worked on the original one mm -hmm. and sons of and daughters of. So you're always worried about whether you would get things right for people to believe it. But I think the response was quite overwhelming, actually. Mm -hmm. I, I had, I've had more chats and talks about that when it came out than most other things apart from the Star Wars. It's quite interesting how it really touched a vein. I mean, I th sadly, I don't know. I don't think they're going for a second series. Um, maybe in the end, that idea of people accepting the puppet world and not the puppet world, you know, Netflix are very organized in how they know exactly how many people watch things. Right. You know, and, that, and even more so than the, than the movie theaters, sometimes it's sort of, it's right down to an art form, those algorithms right. of, what, of what works or what doesn't. But I, but I think, you know, Henson's, I think they're, I think they're going into Labyrinth, Labyrinth right. 2. So they're still pursuing that. And there was a very big decision at the beginning before I joined that it would be all puppets apart mm. from a couple of characters that had to be digital. Um, and I remember seeing a test a test um, uh, bit of footage they did with um, the Skeksis being um, uh, puppets and the Gelflings being digital, like a scene together. And you can you could just you could just see that it didn't work. You know, you really had to go for that puppet, the character and texture you get in the characters right. there was great. Um, and we had the same situation of all the different sets. We had 70 different, it was interesting. I was talking to uh, Malcolm Stone, who was one of the original art directors on the original film and Terry Ackland Snow, and they had 30 sets to do. Um, and they had two years, <laughs> uh -huh. two years. Time was different then. Right. <laughs> you know, like it, it was like, um, it, from Jim's world, it was like a, not a commune in a sense. It was, very much to getting together, but we had 70 to do in three months. <laughs> it shows you how time has changed right. a, a little bit. So you have to work faster and trust your instincts. But I have to say Louis Leterrier was, by chance or planning, I'm sure, was the most perfect director for that show. Mm -hmm. For nine months filming, to stay as energetic as he did, working with 30 puppeteers, in quite difficult environments, getting characters. And, and Louis works with a his own steady cam every day. He sort of has that on all the time. So you could imagine after nine months of filming, you wouldn't have think the intensity would be there at the end, but he was absolutely brilliant wow. for it. And I, if they did go into, if they had have gone into a second series, it would have been a really hard thing to find another Louis. But of course, that's possible. They could have easily found one. But I think a lot of credit for how that, how that works apart from Lisa Henson and right. Rita and uh, the writers it was that Louis is at the helm of all of that you know no 100% I think of course the, the work that you and your team did on that is so seamless and so incredible especially when you have to build sets for puppets right you had to do that briefly for Phantom Menace with with Frank Oz and, and Yoda but I'm sure that was an additional yes, yes. challenge of having to build sets well, well it was the size it was the it was the, also the perception of size the Gelflings are basically a third of our size, they're sort of the three foot or half size, half size, and then the pod, the podlings were two foot, so they were a third. So when when you're in their worlds, you're designing things at a different scale. So that's fine in 
how you do it, whether you draw or do it on the computer, right. you can do it. But as the sets were going up, say for the Gelfling in the stone in the wood, the interiors of the throne room, it sort of looks tiny. <laughs> but of course, it's because you're seeing it as a human. So, but as soon as you go down to three foot high and see it as a Gelfling, it looks the size it should do. So it took us a little bit of time to get used to designing things physically, how much stage space that we need. Uh, but of course, every set is designed for its own character. Obviously, if you're in the Skeksis Castle, you have Podlings and Gelflings, but it's a Skeksis right. Castle. So it, that's more or less a sort of human, human size. But I think the characterization and the puppet work and the voices, I just think are brilliant yeah. in it. I just think they, they work perfectly. And, you know, any designer is always reliant on story and characters. Right. You know, we can do brilliant work design-wise, but no film really just gets noted for that. You've got to go with the story and the characters. Right. And I think they did a brilliant job. But working with 30... 30 puppeteers on set who all are quite characterful as you right. can imagine i mean i don't know whether you've seen the um you know the, the bloopers rule but it's very funny because they would you know they would obviously talk in character when they weren't on camera so they're having these having these mad conversations about where you're going this <laughs> evening and stuff but all, right but all in and some of it was you can imagine was quite rude <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I mean, I don't want to belabor the point, but your work means so much to me and is so timeless, especially on the prequels, which I grew up with. And they're just, they feel like Star Wars to me. They feel comfortable to me. And they feel just... Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to say that. Can you tell my daughter? <laughs> so I appreciate the work and I appreciate the time and I appreciate the conversation. And Gavin, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a, it's a real honor. No, anytime you like, just let me know. What a great time and an enormous honor to get to talk with Mr. Bouquet. If right now you could go to the app where you're listening to this podcast and leave a five-star rating and a review, it is so, so appreciated. Thank you all for making September the most listened to month we have ever had. For October, we have some incredible guests lined up, including Emily Swallow, the armorer from The Mandalorian, pre-production wizard David Dozeritz, the geniuses at Blind Limited, and author of the infamous but beloved Club of Darth Vader series, Paul Davids. Until then, though, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.